Good evening, everyone. Uh, for those of you who haven't been here over the course of the summer, I want to welcome you back. It's really spectacular to see so many great friends in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Um, I'm Louise Mirror. I'm New York Historical's president and CEO, for those of you who are new. And uh, I do just want to make sure that um, any of you who have not yet visited our brand new exhibition, Chinese Exclusion, uh, sorry, Chinese American Exclusion Inclusion, uh, has a chance to visit. It's, um, it's a fantastic show, and uh, I can guarantee that you will learn much from it, even those of you who are true history buffs. Um, I also uh, want to say that um, uh, our uh, Bernard and Irene Schwartz film series is, um, is once again in tow, and uh, I want to invite you all, if you haven't seen the brochure for this season, to, um, uh, to make sure that you, that you do get one. Um, I want to thank, as always, uh, Mr. Schwartz, Bernard Schwartz, who is with us this evening. Thank you so much, Bernard, for all that you do. Um, very sadly, Mrs. Schwartz is no longer with us, but she's with us in spirit. So um, we all want to remember her marvelous, marvelous um, uh, help to this great institution, support of it, and enthusiasm for the work that we do. Um, tonight's lecture, of course, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series, which is uh, the heart of our public programs. Um, I also want to recognize a couple of our trustees who are in the audience with us tonight, um, Mr. Richard Reese and Mr. Michael Weisberg, and to thank them for all that they do on our behalf. Thank you. Uh, so, um, Ron Chernow is also with us this evening, and I always want to recognize him because we're always um, elevated when he is in our presence. So, thank you, Ron. Um, we are really thrilled this evening to welcome James M. McPherson back to the New York Historical Society. Dr. McPherson is the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History Emeritus at Princeton University, and he is one of the country's preeminent Civil War scholars. He's the best-selling author of numerous books on the Civil War, including Battle Cry of Freedom, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1989. He's a two-time winner of the Lincoln Prize for his books Tried by War, Abraham Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief, and For Cause and Comrades, Why Men Fought in the Civil War. Before we begin, as always, I'd like to ask that you please make sure that your cell phones or anything else that makes a noise is switched off. Um, I also want to um, uh, remind you that there will be a book signing this evening following the program. And now please do join me in welcoming Dr. McPherson to our stage. Thank you so much, Louise, and thanks to all of you for your warm welcome to me this evening. I feel a little bit naked up here on the stage without Harold Holzer and John Marsalak and Craig Simons. Uh, as some of you may know, Harold is in the hospital. He's had a series of uh, bad luck with a shoulder operation, but we're hoping that it'll get well and we'll all be together again later in uh, the winter season here on the stage at uh, this wonderful venue. I'm calling the lecture this evening, Jefferson Davis and the General Who Would Not Fight. Now, I think most of you are familiar with the tensions between Union President Abraham Lincoln and his principal military commander in the war's first year and a half, General George B. McClellan. After many months of exercising endless patience with McClellan's excuses for not carrying out orders to take the war to the enemy, Lincoln finally gave up, as he put it, trying to bore with an auger too dull to take hold, and fired McClellan in November 1862. Two years later, McClellan ran for president against Lincoln, and he lost that battle too. Less familiar, at least here in the North, is the story of similar tensions between Confederate President Jefferson Davis and one of his principal generals, Joseph E. Johnston. Johnston never ran for president against Davis, though perhaps he might have if the opportunity had ever come up. 
But the hostility between the two men became more intense, lasted longer, and perhaps had a more adverse impact on the Confederate war effort than did the Lincoln-McClellan conflict on the Union war effort. Davis from Mississippi and Johnston from Virginia were fellow cadets at West Point in the 1820s, graduating one year apart. They knew each other there, but were not close. A rumor later circulated that they had had a fight over a girl while, while they were at the, academy, at the academy, but that story is almost certainly apocryphal. Be that as it may, when the war began and Virginia seceded, Johnston resigned from the United States Army and Davis appointed him as a general commanding one of the two largest Confederate field armies in Virginia. Pierre G.T. Beauregard commanded the other. Those two armies combined to win the Battle of Manassas on July 21st, 1861. In the two months preceding that battle, many people in the South had expected Jefferson Davis to take personal command of the main Confederate Army. After all, Davis had graduated from West Point. He had served as a regular Army officer for seven years. He had commanded a Mississippi volunteer regiment in the Mexican War from which he emerged as an authentic and wounded war hero. And he had served as a fine Secretary of War in the 1850s. In February 1861, when the Confederate government was formed, Davis hoped to be appointed as general-in-chief of its army. Instead, he was elected as president, which of course made him commander-in-chief, a civilian position, but one that gave him the authority to give orders to his army commanders. Davis at first intimated that he might take command in the field of the troops in Virginia. Joseph Johnston himself urged Davis in June 1861 to, as Johnston put it, appear in the position General Washington occupied during the Revolution. Civil affairs can be postponed. But Davis discovered that as president, he could not postpone or ignore civil affairs in order to take the field as commander in chief. Still, he itched to do so even though he was required to stay in Richmond to address the Confederate Congress when it met there for the first time on July 20th, 1861. After doing that, though, on the hot morning of July 21st, he could stand the suspense no longer. He knew that the combined armies of Beauregard and Johnston were confronting the enemy near the railroad junction at Manassas. He commandeered a special train, and with a single aide, Davis chugged northward. Arriving at Manassas Junction in mid-afternoon, he borrowed a horse and rode toward the sound of the guns. He was dismayed by what he first encountered. Stragglers and wounded men bearing tales of defeat, discarded rifles, damaged equipment, the usual detritus in the rear of a battlefield. Davis tried to rally the stragglers. I am President Davis, he shouted. Follow me back to the field. Some did. By the time Davis reached Johnston's headquarters where he found the general sending reinforcements to the front, it was clear that the Confederates had won the battle. Union troops were in headlong retreat. Davis rode farther forward and addressed the soldiers who cheered him to the echo. That evening, Davis met with Johnston and Beauregard at their headquarters. Davis wanted to organize a pursuit of the beaten enemy and suggested that one of the generals order such a movement. They remained silent, presumably because as commander-in-chief, Davis was now in charge. He began to dictate such an order, but on reflection and further information about the disorganized nature of the Confederate Army, and more consultation, they concluded that in the darkness an effective pursuit was impossible. Next morning, heavy rain and the empty haversacks of Confederate troops brought a tentative reconnaissance to a halt. Even though it was Davis who was most eager to follow up the victory aggressively, an impression grew up in the South that it was he who had discouraged pursuit. 
Beauregard fed this myth with an ambiguous passage in his battle report and in Backstair's comments to congressmen. This was the beginning of a growing rift between Beauregard and Davis that became second only to the eventual schism between Johnston and Davis. But in the summer of 1861, Davis and Johnston remained on good terms. That cordiality became seriously strained in September over the question of Johnson's ranking on the list of Confederate generals. Back in May 1861, the Confederate Congress had authorized the appointment of five full generals, the equivalent of four-star generals. The law specified that their rank order would be equivalent to their relative grade in the United States Army in the same branch of the service before they had resigned to go south. Thus, Davis gave the top ranking to Samuel Cooper, whom almost nobody has ever heard of, <laughs> as adjutant and inspector general, the same staff position he had held in the old army, and now a desk job in Richmond. Davis named his longtime friend, Albert Sidney Johnston, who was on his way to Richmond from California but hadn't yet commanded Confederate troops, to the second position, followed by Robert E. Lee, who at this time was commanding a small army trying unsuccessfully to push Union troops out of the western part of Virginia that subsequently became West Virginia. Davis rounded out the list of five full generals with Joseph Johnston as number four and Beauregard as number five. When Joe Johnston learned in September of his number four ranking, he exploded in anger. All along, he had assumed that he was number one based on his position as quartermaster general in the pre-war U.S. Army with the rank of brigadier general, while the three that Davis ranked above him had all been colonels. Johnson sat down and wrote a blistering letter to Davis venting his outrage. The president's action, Johnston told him, was a studied indignity that tarnished my fair name as a soldier and a man, and was a blow aimed at me only especially since he was in command during the great victory at Manassas and those ranked above him had, as he put it, not yet struck a blow for the Confederacy. This angry missive reached Davis while he was suffering one of his frequent bouts of illness, this time a recurrence of his old malarial fever, which no doubt sharpened the asperity of his reply. He acknowledged receiving Johnston's letter and added, its language is, as you say, unusual. Its arguments and statements utterly one-sided, and its insinuations as unfounded as they are unbecoming. That was it. No response to Johnston's arguments, no explanation of the reason for the ranking. Such an explanation would have pointed out that Johnston's grade as a line officer in the old army was lieutenant colonel, while the three men ranked above him had been full colonels. Johnston's brigadier generalship was in a staff position, while his branch of service in the Confederate Army was as a line officer, so under the terms of the law, his pre-war grade was below the others. Even if Davis had bothered to explain all of this complicated matter to Johnston, the general would not have been satisfied. The insult to his honor, as he considered it, rankled him for the rest of his life. He dropped the matter for now, and neither he nor Davis mentioned it to each other again. But given the large and brittle egos of both men, it remained a festering issue in the recesses of both minds. But they had a war to fight against the enemy. So for the next six months, they cooperated as commander-in-chief and top field general in Virginia to confront the enemy threat. Beauregard was transferred to the Western Theater and Lee went to South Carolina to organize the South Atlantic coastal defenses. Johnston organized and trained his growing army occupying the Centerville-Manassas line in Northern Virginia where it faced a larger Union army under McClellan who was subject to increasing pressure from Lincoln to do something with that army. Concerned that McClellan might in fact do something, Davis summoned Johnston to a strategy meeting in Richmond in February 1862. 
They discussed the vulnerability of Johnston's army at Centerville to a flanking movement by McClellan via, via the Occoquan or Rappahannock River. They agreed that Johnston should pull back to a more defensible position south of the Rappahannock. But the wretched condition of the roads caused by winter rains and the chaotic state of the overworked railroads made a quick withdrawal impossible. Davis ordered Johnston to send his large guns, camp equipage, and huge stockpiles of meat and other supplies south as transportation became available, and to prepare to retreat with the army itself when he received definite orders. But in early March, Johnston began a precipitate withdrawal when his scouts detected federal activity that he thought was the beginning of McClellan's anticipated flanking movement. Without informing Richmond, he feared a leak, he said later, Johnston fell back so quickly that he was compelled to leave behind or destroy his heavy guns, ammunition, and mounds of supplies, including 750 tons of meat and other foodstuffs that the Confederacy could ill afford to lose. In Richmond, Davis heard rumors of this retreat, but as he later told Johnston, I was at a loss to believe it. Davis's distress at the destruction of supplies was acute. This blow came at a time of other Confederate defeats in the West and in North Carolina. These reverses and Davis's waning confidence in Johnston caused the president to recall Robert E. Lee from Charleston and install him as his top military advisor in Richmond, a sort of general in chief. One of Lee's first activities in this capacity was to instruct General Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson to carry out diversionary attacks in the Shenandoah Valley, which Jackson did with spectacular success. Nevertheless, McClellan increased the pressure on Richmond with the buildup of his large army near Fort Monroe at the tip of the Virginia Peninsula, 70 miles down the James River from, from Richmond. Davis and Lee ordered Johnston to send part of his army to the lines at Yorktown to block McClellan, and then a few days later to bring his whole force to the peninsula. Johnston wanted, wanted to concentrate the army near Richmond itself, but Lee and Davis opposed that plan. Lee argued for making their stand at Yorktown, where the army's flanks would be protected by the big guns, big guns at Gloucester on the York River, and by the CSS Virginia, the ironclad ship rebuilt from the scuttled and captured Merrimack on the James River. This was a more defensible position, Lee argued, and Davis supported him. Pulling back to a line near Richmond would mean abandoning Norfolk and its Navy Yard, the base for the CSS Virginia. Davis ordered Johnston to Yorktown, where he confronted McClellan's 110,000 troops with his own dug-in army of 60,000 men. Instead of attacking, McClellan brought up his big guns and methodically prepared to pulverize Confederate defenses with artillery. Despite having been overruled by Davis, Johnston still intended to evacuate Yorktown, the Yorktown lines, without a fight. He delayed that move until McClellan was ready to open up with his siege artillery. Johnston failed to keep Davis and Lee informed until the last minute on May 1st, when he told the president that he must pull out the next night. Davis was shocked. He replied that such a sudden retreat would mean the loss of Norfolk and possibly of the ironclad Virginia and other ships under construction there. Johnston agreed to wait for one day. On the night of May 3rd, 4th, his army stealthily left the Yorktown line and began a retreat toward Richmond. The Confederates fought a rearguard battle with the cautiously pursuing Federals at Williamsburg and continued to a new line behind the Chickahominy River about 20 miles from Richmond. Norfolk fell to the Yankees and the Virginia's crew had to blow her up because her draft was too great to get up the James River. Davis was, not surprisingly, dismayed by these developments. He allowed his anguish to leak into a letter to Johnston lamenting what Davis called the drooping cause of our country. 
The ostensible purpose of the letter was to prod Johnston into carrying out Davis's earlier orders to group regiments from the same state together in brigades as a boost for morale. He told Johnston, some have expressed surprise at my patience with you when orders to you were not observed. Johnston recognized this rebuke for what it was, an expression of exasperation with his conduct of the campaign. If he had received such a letter from someone who could be, as he put it, held to personal accountability, as Johnston told his wife, he would have challenged him to a duel. The scenario of retreat without informing Davis was repeated yet again two weeks later. The president expect John, expected Johnston to defend the line of the Chickahominy River and even launch, to launch a counterattack if he stopped McClellan along that sluggish stream. But without telling Davis, Johnston had decided to withdraw to a new position only four miles east of Richmond. When the president rode out on May 18th, as he did many days uh, when the armies were near enough to Richmond, when he rode out on May 18th to visit Johnston on the Chickahominy, he was taken aback when he encountered the army before he had ridden more than a few miles. Davis confronted Johnston and asked why he had pulled back so close to the city. The general replied that the ground was so swampy and the drinking water so bad in the Chickahominy lowlands that he had moved to better ground and a safer supply of water. Davis was unnerved. Do you intend to give up Richmond without a battle? He asked. Johnston's reply was equivocal. The president responded with asperity. He told Johnston, according to one of Davis's aides who was present, that if he was not going to give battle, he would appoint someone to the command who would. Davis rode back to Richmond and summoned his cabinet and General Lee to a meeting the following day. He asked Johnston also to attend so that everyone could learn his intentions. That afternoon, Davis wrote to his wife, who had taken the family to North Carolina because of the danger to Richmond. I have been waiting all day for Johnston to communicate his plans. We are uncertain of everything except that a battle must be near at hand. Johnston never showed up, but Davis went ahead with the meeting anyway, where he expressed anxiety about the fate of Richmond. According to Postmaster General John Reagan, Lee became emotional. Richmond must not be given up, he declared. It shall not be given up. As Lee spoke, Reagan recalled, Tears ran down his cheeks. I have seen him on many occasions and times when the very fate of the Confederacy hung in the balance, but I never saw him show equally deep emotion. The next day, Davis assured an anxious delegation from the Virginia legislature that Richmond would indeed be defended. Johnston finally seemed to get the message. McClellan had crossed the Chickahominy with part of his army, leaving the other part northeast of that stream. Johnston told Davis he planned to attack that part, the part north of the Chickahominy, on May 22nd. Davis had earlier discussed just such a plan of attack, so he approved of Johnston's tactics. He rode out to the bluff overlooking the valley that day to see the action commence, as he wrote to his wife but he found nothing happening, and no one who could tell him why the attack had been called off. It turned out that scouts had learned that the enemy was strongly posted behind Beaver Dam Creek, so the attack had been aborted. Davis was depressed. Thus ended the offensive-defensive program, he wrote to his wife, from which Lee expected much and of which I was hopeful. Almost the same thing happened again exactly one week later. Once more, Johnston planned to attack the enemy's right flank north of the Chickahominy, and once more he called it off without informing Davis, who had again ridden out to watch the battle. Johnston had changed his mind and decided instead to attack the two enemy corps south of the Chickahominy and nearest to Richmond. He explained later that he did not tell Davis about this change of of plan, quote, because it seemed to me that to do so would be to transfer my responsibilities to his shoulders, 
I could not consult him without adopting the course he might advise, so that to ask his advice would have been, in my opinion, to ask him to command for me. Johnston's, Johnston's decidedly peculiar notion of the correct relationship with his commander-in-chief meant that Davis first learned of the general's changed plan of attack when he heard artillery firing on the afternoon of May 31st. He quickly left his office, mounted his horse, and rode toward the sound of the guns. When he arrived near the village of Seven Pines, which gave its name to the battle, he saw Johnston riding away toward the front. Davis's aides were convinced that the general had left to avoid seeing Davis. The battle was not going well for the Confederates. As dusk approached, it was clear that their attack had failed. At that moment, stretcher bearers passed the president's party carrying a seriously wounded Johnston to the rear. All animosity forgotten, Davis rushed to Johnston's side and spoke to him with genuine concern. It was clear that while his wounds were not mortal, he would be out of action for months. As Davis and Lee rode together back to Richmond that night, the president told Lee that he was now the commander of what Lee would soon designate as the Army of Northern Virginia. A new era would dawn with that army's new name and new commander. Johnson's recovery took almost six months. During that time, he moved into the Richmond home of Senator Louis Wigfall of Texas a violent, heavy-drinking, fire-eating secessionist who had engaged in several duels and killed one man. Despite differences in personalities, Johnston and Wigfall became close friends. Wigfall had initially supported Jefferson Davis, but they had come to a parting of the ways and Wigfall became Davis's most pugnacious critic in Congress. During Johnston's convalescence in Wigfall's home, he and the senator no doubt had many conversations that reinforced their mutual hostility toward the Confederate president. When Johnston reported himself fit for duty again in November 1862, Davis faced the dilemma of what duty to assign him. What Johnston would have liked was a return to command of the Army of Northern Virginia, but there was no chance of that. Lee had made that army his own. All other Confederate field armies also had commanders. Davis decided to make Johnston a sort of theater commander, giving him overall responsibility for the vast region between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River, including several armies, principally Braxton Bragg's Army of Tennessee and John C. Pemberton's Army of Mississippi. Confederate prospects in that theater had recently improved after devastating losses earlier in the year. But Pemberton's hold on Vicksburg and the lower Mississippi was still threatened, and Bragg's position in Middle Tennessee was precarious after his retreat in October from the abortive invasion of Kentucky. By giving Johnston authority over these crucial theaters, Davis thought he was conferring important responsibility and prestige commensurate with the, question, with the general's rank and ambition. But Johnston thought otherwise, seeing it as an effort by Davis to put him on the shelf by giving him a position with no real authority. That was not Davis's purpose at all, though he seemed to give some substance to that suspicion by requiring Bragg and Pemberton to continue reporting directly to Richmond as well as to Johnston and by sometimes sending orders directly to Bragg and Pemberton without going through Johnston. Still, Johnston could have made much more of his command if he had chosen, but he preferred to complain about his lack of authority and to express his desire for a real army command. When Davis gave him that opportunity in early 1863, however, Johnston declined it. Dissension in the Army of Tennessee had grown worse after its second retreat in January, following the Battle of Murfreesboro. A cabal of corps and division commanders in the army blamed Braxton Bragg for inept leadership and intrigued to have him replaced. 
Davis instructed Johnston to investigate this imbroglio and to take command of the army himself if he found the complaints against Bragg justified. Johnston gave Bragg a, a clean bill of health, telling Davis that the army's operations under Bragg, quote, evince great vigor and skill. The interest of the service requires that General Bragg should not be removed. But the infighting among the high-ranking officers in the Army of Tennessee only grew worse. In March 1863, Davis ordered Johnston to take field command of the Army and to send Bragg to Richmond for reassignment. But Johnston once again managed to avoid obedience to his commander-in-chief's wishes. When he arrived at Bragg's headquarters in Tullahoma, Tennessee, Johnston learned that Bragg's wife was seriously ill, so the general could not be sent away. Then Johnston himself fell sick. On April 10th, he reported that he was, as he put it, not now able to serve in the field. When Johnston recovered from his illness after several weeks, the scene of concern had shifted to Mississippi where Union General Ulysses S. Grant had launched his campaign against Vicksburg. The loss of that bastion would be a staggering blow to the Confederacy. On May 9th, Davis ordered Johnston to Mississippi to take personal command of the troops there. Johnston arrived at Jackson, the state capital, on May 13th to find that Grant's army was about to capture that city and was preparing to turn west toward Vicksburg itself. I am too late, Johnston wired Richmond. This pessimism set the tone for Johnston's efforts, or the lack thereof, during the next seven weeks. He ordered General Pemberton to evacuate Vicksburg and to combine his army with Johnston's small force to form a mobile army to defeat Grant. Pemberton was reluctant to do so because Davis had telegraphed him a week earlier that to hold, Vicksburg, to hold both Vicksburg and Port Hudson is necessary to our connection with Trans-Mississippi. Many Southerners were already skeptical of Pemberton because he had been born in the North. He feared that if he obeyed Johnston's instructions to abandon Vicksburg, he would be accused of treason. In any event, Grant's victories at Champions Hill on May 16th and at Big Black River on May 17th drove Pemberton's 30,000 men back into the Vicksburg defenses. The failure of two Union attacks against these formidable works caused Grant to settle in for a siege. Davis scraped together reinforcements for Johnston, building up his force to about 25,000 men hovering east of Vicksburg. Davis urged Johnston to attack Grant's rear and break through to reinforce Pemberton but Johnston said that his force was too small to cut through the cordon of 30,000 troops under Sherman that Grant established to protect his rear. In Vicksburg, however, the hope that Johnston would rescue them buoyed both soldiers and civilians who were under the siege. The Vicksburg newspaper, now being printed on wallpaper because it had run out of newsprint, reported, the undaunted Johnson is at hand. Johnston is at hand. Hold out a few days longer and our lines will be open. The enemy driven away, the siege raised. But Johnston was daunted and he was not at hand. On June 15th, he wired Secretary of War James Seddon, I consider saving Vicksburg hopeless. A War Department official reported that Davis was, quote, furious with Johnston. The president directed Seddon to reply, your telegram grieves and alarms us. Vicksburg must not be lost, at least without a struggle. The interest and honor of the Confederacy forbid it. I rely on you still to avert the loss. If better resource does not offer, you must hazard attack. But Johnston did not hazard attack. On the 4th of July, the starving garrison surrendered. When the news reached Richmond, Davis was bitter against Johnston, according to Ordnance Chief Josiah Gorgas. When Gorgas said that Vicksburg fell because of want of provisions, Davis replied, yes, from want of provisions inside, 
and a general outside who would not fight. Johnston retreated to the state capital at Jackson. Sherman pursued and began to surround the city, hoping to salvage something from what he called the disastrous termination of the siege of Vicksburg, Davis urged Johnston to hold the state capital if possible. The importance of your position is apparent, he told Johnston, and you will not fail to employ all available means to ensure success. But Johnston feared encirclement by Sherman's force, so he evacuated Jackson on July 16th. He left so hastily that he failed to secure some 400 railroad cars and locomotives, which the Confederacy would sorely miss. Davis relieved Johnston of his theater command, making Bragg independent of him and leaving Johnston in control only of the troops that he had evacuated from Jackson. Davis also wrote a 15-page letter in his own hand charging Johnston with what amounted to dereliction of duty. Johnston fired back, heatedly denying the charge and blaming Pemberton. This exchange inaugurated what Johnston's biographer describes as a paper war between the partisans of Davis and those of Johnston that increasingly poisoned the body politic of the Confederacy. Three months after the fall of Vicksburg, Mary Chesnut wrote in her famous diary that her husband James, a member of Davis's staff, told the president after an inspection trip Every honest man he saw out west thought well of Joe Johnston. He knows that the president detests Joe Johnston for all the trouble he has given him. And General Joe returns the compliment with compound interest. His hatred of Jeff Davis amounts to a religion. This mutual hostility had an important impact on Confederate operations the rest of the war. Davis's biggest headache in the autumn of 1863, however, was what to do about Braxton Bragg and the Army of Tennessee. Chronic dissension between Bragg and his senior generals continued to plague that army, even after its tactical victory at Chickamauga in September. This victory seemed barren of strategic results because the defeated enemy remained in control of Chattanooga. Most of Bragg's subordinates blamed him for this state of affairs. Davis twice tried to persuade Lee to go south and take command of that troubled army, but Lee convinced the president that it was more important for him to stay in Virginia. In October, Davis himself made the long trip to Georgia to sort out the problems between Bragg and his subordinates. After several painful conversations and confrontations, Davis decided to keep Bragg in command. One reason for this controversial decision was that the logical alternative to Bragg was Johnston. Davis had tried to get Johnston to take direct command of that army back in the spring, but of course that hadn't worked out, and now Davis was so angry at Johnston that a renewed offer seemed unthinkable. But after Bragg's disastrous defeat at Chattanooga in November, the pressure to appoint Johnston became overwhelming. Davis first named General William Hardy to the post after Bragg resigned, but Hardy turned it down because he didn't feel up to the task of leading that afflicted organization. So in the end, Davis had nowhere else to go than Johnston, who became the Army of Tennessee's new commander in December 1863. Johnston set to work to reorganize the army and prepare it for the spring offensive by Sherman that everybody knew was coming. Davis hoped that Johnson could steal a march on Sherman and launch a preemptive winter offensive that might set the Federals back on their heels. But from Johnston's headquarters in Dalton, Georgia, came a steady stream of dispatches describing the deficiencies of the Army that made any kind of offensive impossible. The Army, quote, has not entirely recovered its, its confidence, Johnston informed Davis. The artillery is deficient in discipline and instruction. The horses are not in good condition. The troops have neither subsistence nor field transportation enough, and the enemy outnumbered him almost two to one. Abraham Lincoln could have sympathized with Davis because he had received endless messages from McClellan of the same nature back in 1862. 
They were closer to the truth in Johnston's case than they had been in McClellan's, to be sure. But Davis knew that the same problems existed in Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. Indeed, had existed back in the spring of 1863, just before that army's spectacular victory at Chancellorsville. But it became eminently clear to Davis that he could expect nothing like Chancellorsville from Johnston. He did hope that Johnston might stop Sherman's offensive, or at least make him pay heavily for it as Lee made Grant pay in Virginia. But in Georgia, Sherman repeatedly flanked Johnston's defensive positions and forced him back step by step 70 miles to the outskirts of Atlanta by the first week of July. Johnston kept his army intact in these retreats but yielded valuable territory and raised doubts in Richmond about whether he intended to defend Atlanta, which was not only an important railroad and manufacturing center, but had become a symbol of Confederate resistance, second only to Richmond itself. Davis agreed with Secretary of War Seddon's appraisal of Johnston's strategy. Johnston's theory of war, said Seddon, seemed to be never to fight unless strong enough certainly to overwhelm your enemy and under all circumstances merely to continue to elude him. Davis might also have agreed with a modern historian of this campaign, Richard McMurray, who was not being entirely facetious when he said that if Johnston had remained in command, he would have fought the crucial battle of the Atlanta campaign at Key West. By the 4th of July, Johnson had pulled back to the Chattahoochee River just north of Atlanta. He assured Senator Benjamin Hill of Georgia that he could hold that line against Sherman for at least 50 days. Hill went to Richmond and conveyed this assurance to Davis. With a wry smile, Davis showed Hill a telegram he had just received announcing that Sherman had crossed the river two days earlier and Johnston had retreated into the Atlanta fortifications. Davis decided that Johnston must go. The cabinet agreed unanimously. Secretary of State Judah Benjamin voiced their conviction. Johnston is determined not to fight, he said. It is of no use to reinforce him. He is not going to fight. Davis knew that relieving Johnston would be an enormously controversial act, and he wasn't sure who would replace him. He decided to give Johnston one last chance. On July 16th, he telegraphed the general, I wish to hear from you as to present situation and your plan of operations. Johnston replied, my plan of operations must depend upon that of the enemy. It is mainly to watch for an opportunity to fight for advantage. We are trying to put Atlanta in a condition to be held for a day or two by the Georgia militia that army movements may be freer and wider. The Georgia militia, you may know about the song that celebrates the Georgia militia eating goober peas. A day or two. To Davis, this reply meant that Johnson was planning to yield Atlanta to the enemy. Just as it had seemed back in 1862 that he might not defend Richmond, and in 1863, that he failed to try to rescue Vicksburg. On July 17th, Davis replaced Johnston with John Bell Hood, the crippled but bellicose transfer from the Army of Northern Virginia. Hood did manage to hold off Sherman for six weeks and later even invaded Tennessee, but at the cost of virtually destroying the Army of Tennessee. This unhappy denouement caused many contemporaries and later historians to arraign, condemn Davis's removal of Johnston as his greatest mistake as commander in chief. Many of these contemporaries and historians also took Johnston's side in his ongoing differences with Davis. I leave it to each of you to decide where you stand on this matter. And I will now take your questions. So if you'll come forward.
There are microphones at the front of both aisles, so if you'll come forward uh, and ask your question, everybody can hear it. I'm, a, I'm Jim Pasinich. I'm a docent here. Professor McPherson, I'd love to hear your opinion uh, as to was Johnson right or, or Bell the right person to defend Atlanta? I'm sorry, I didn't quite... I, I would love to hear your opinion, whether Johnston was the right person to defend Atlanta or, in fact, was John Bell Hood the right person? Well, I'm not sure whether I agree with Richard McMurray that he would have fought the key battle of that campaign on Key West, uh, but if he had continued with his pattern, Johnston this is now, uh, he might well have abandoned Atlanta in order to keep uh, the mobility of his army rather than trying to defend the city. Uh, he had actually tried to get Pemberton to abandon Vicksburg, remember, back in July, in uh, uh, May of, of 1863. Um, so I, I think it's quite possible that if Johnston had remained in command, he would have evacuated Atlanta, but he would have kept his army intact. So if the goal is to defend Atlanta, I think Hood was, maybe not Hood was the right person to do it. Um, Davis consulted Robert E. Lee about this problem. And Lee advised that maybe William Hardy would have been a more experienced commander to replace Johnston if Johnston had to be replaced. But, Davis had already offered the command of that army to Hardee back in December of 1863. He had turned it down then because he didn't feel competent to command it, and so Davis decided he wasn't going to try Hardee again. Uh, over the winter of 1863-64, uh, when Hood was convalescing from the amputation of his leg, which, uh, where he had been hit in the Battle of Chickamauga, uh, Hood and, John, and Davis uh, struck up a friendship with each other. Davis became almost a surrogate father to Hood. Uh, Davis was in his 50s and Hood was in only about 30 years old at that time. Um, they, they, uh, Hood was uh, learning to ride a horse again. Uh, the only form of exercise that Davis had was to ride uh, out uh, in the environs of Richmond and they spent a lot of time uh, riding and I think uh, uh, Davis uh, became quite fond of Hood, and Hood uh, knew where his bread would be buttered as an ambition general and cultivated uh, that Davis's fondness for him. So, uh, and, and Hood was actually sending messages during the Atlanta campaign to Davis, uh, not going through channels, uh, complaining about uh, sending uh, communications to Davis, I'm sorry, not going through channels. Uh, and so there was a little bit of uh, backroom intrigue going on and that, that caused Davis to uh, decide to give the command to Hood, and I'm not sure that was the best decision he could have made. Lee didn't think so. Uh, but Hood did actually defend Atlanta for six weeks before it finally fell, but as I suggested, at considerable cost to his own army. So I don't think there's a simple answer to that question, but I think um, it's, it's, cl it's clear to me as it was clear to Davis, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that Johnston might well have abandoned Atlanta. And I don't think Johnston appreciated the psychological and political impact that such a, an evacuation would have had. He was thinking only in military terms. Uh, but in a, in a war, uh, the, 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 the uh, public opinion uh, and the, and the uh, political consequences of something like losing Atlanta, because, which had become such a symbol of resistance, uh, would have had uh, very large consequences well beyond whatever military considerations governed there. Thank you. Yes. Uh, thank you for a fascinating talk of the relationship between Davis and his generals. But you mentioned Judah Benjamin, and I think it's fascinating. At a time when Grant was issuing orders to expel all Jews from Tennessee, rescinded by Lincoln, the Secretary of State of the Confederacy was a Sephardic Jew from Charleston who'd been a U.S. Senator. Can you tell us a little more about that relationship, which was so unusual for that time? Well, the Judah Benjamin and Jefferson Davis relationship was interesting. Uh, before the war, they had both been United States Senators, uh, Davis from Mississippi and Benjamin from Louisiana. Uh, and they had not gone along very well, even though they both were pro-slavery, uh, pro-Southern, 
uh, and representing neighboring states. And at one time, uh, Davis had made some uh, uh, critical remarks uh, about uh, Benjamin, and Benjamin actually challenged him to a duel, which is what you did in those days. If you didn't like what, your, what, your, what was said in Congress, maybe they ought to do that today, actually. <laughs> we could get rid of them. And, uh, but, but Davis realized that he had stepped out of line. Uh, he apologized to Benjamin. Uh, they made up, and that actually seemed to strengthen the relationship between the two of them. Uh, and when the Confederacy was created, Davis initially appointed Judah Benjamin as Attorney General. Um, but the Attorney General didn't really have much to do because uh, the Confederacy never had time to set up a federal uh, a Confederate or federal court system because they were embroiled in war from, from the very beginning. Uh, and then uh, Benjamin became Secretary of War for several months. Uh, and this, these months happened to be a time when the Confederacy was suffering a lot of reverses. Uh, over the winter of 61-62, uh, and, uh, and Benjamin took the blame for a lot of these reverses. Uh, he became uh, the target of attack by uh, Confederate newspapers, uh, by some in Congress, and I think there was some anti-Semitism involved in these attacks. Uh, and so Davis really had to replace Benjamin, but I don't think he mollified his critics by then appointing De Benjamin as Secretary of State. Uh, and he remained Secretary of State during the rest of the war and became uh, Davis's uh, probably principal civilian uh, confidant uh, and advisor on, on not only foreign policy, but uh, some other uh, policies. He, he wrote some of Davis's speeches uh, Benjamin did, and they had, they had a very close relationship. Uh, and uh, they, they evacuated Richmond together in April of 1865, and while Davis was captured uh, by Union cavalry and imprisoned, uh, Benjamin made his escape, uh, first to Cuba and then to Europe. If he had uh, actually been captured, I think the Federals would have treated him pretty roughly because there was some evidence that Benjamin, who was in charge of the Confederate Secret Service, uh, had been involved in the plotting to kidnap President Lincoln and bring him to Richmond, a plot that actually evolved into the plot to assassinate him. So I think Benjamin um, might, have, um, might have suffered the consequences of at least his peripheral connection with, with that plot. Is there anybody over? Yes. Hey. Um, so you mentioned that both Davis and Johnston went to West Point, and it seems like Johnston's policies were heavily influenced by Jomini. I might be wrong in saying that, but I was wondering to what extent um, their education influenced their opinions of each other's battle strategies. Antoine Henri Jomini was a Swiss um, officer under Napoleon and an interpreter of Napoleon's campaigns and wrote the most influential military manuals uh, that were in use at West Point uh, in the uh, 1820s, 1830s, 1840s. Uh, and so West Pointers uh, learned a lot about their, um, what they knew about the, the nature of war and the tactics of war and strategy war of the war from uh, reading Jomini, uh, who was fairly conventional in, in his interpretation of what armies ought to do. Uh, so it wasn't just that Davis and, and Johnston would have been influenced by Jomini. Uh, almost everybody who attended West Point and became a military commander in the Civil War uh, had read Jomini, had been uh, taught by professors who uh, taught Jomini. Uh, General Henry ha uh, Henry. Uh, Halleck, who became General-in-Chief for a while of the Union Army, had actually translated uh, Jomini from the French to the English and then had also written a military manual himself, which was pretty much a knockoff of Jomini. Uh, so Jomini is very influential uh, among uh, a lot of Civil War generals. Uh, sometimes uh, his, uh, it, 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 that constrained their, their tactics and their operations in a war that uh, had new technology, the railroads, steamships, uh, rifled muskets, rifled artillery that hadn't existed in Germany's time. 
so if you're bound by uh, your study of Germany, who seemed to be the real expert, but uh, conditions had changed because of changes in technology, maybe it was a big disadvantage to be uh, shackled by obedience to Germany. And I think that's one of the reasons why Grant, for example, uh, became such an uh, innovative commander is that he was not bound by those shackles. Uh, he had read Germany too, but I don't think he had taken him to heart. And as a consequence, I think maybe Germany was a bit of a uh, restraint on some Civil War generals who may have finished up higher in West Point classes than Grant did, but that didn't necessarily mean that they were going to be better generals. Yeah. In, uh, in my readings about Jeff Davis, in my readings about Jeff Davis, particularly Cass Canfield's book, it sort of mentions that after the Mexican War, he really wasn't doing that well. He was sort of aimless, and also reading about Lee after the Mexican War, he didn't seem to be going anywhere, and certainly Grant was not going anywhere. And taking the phrase that Canfield mentioned about Jeff Davis, the man and the hour of Met, I get the feeling that if it weren't for the Civil War, these three figures may have been failures. In your readings, did you get any feeling about that? Well, I don't think I agree uh, with that uh, position with respect to Davis and Lee. Uh, both of them came home from the Mexican War, having achieved great reputation. Although Davis did uh, was defeated in a campaign for governor of Mississippi uh, after the Compromise of 1850, he was running against the idea of the Compromise of 1850. Uh, he almost immediately was elected to the Senate, uh, where he was an influential member. Uh, and then he was Secretary of War in Franklin Pierce's administration from 1853 to 57, and then went back into the Senate in 1857. Uh, so he almost continuously was prominent in the uh, politics of, of the 1850s, partly as a consequence of the reputation he had won in the Mexican War. So I don't think I would agree that he was uh, aimless and drifting and sees himself as a failure. And I don't think that was really true of Lee either. Uh, Lee was uh, appointed as superintendent of uh, the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, uh, a prestigious position in the U.S. peacetime army. Uh, and after he left that position, uh, he became the lieutenant commander of the newly created 2nd U.S. Cavalry, and then uh, at the very eve of uh, secession, uh, the commander of the 1st U.S. Cavalry. So they were both uh, rising as, as far as possible, Davis in, in politics in the 1850s and Lee in the army in a peacetime situation. Grant is another story. Uh, he did flounder once he left the army in 1854, and I think it was the war that rescued him from obscurity, but I don't think I would necessarily agree with that in the case of the other two men. Thank you. One last question over here. Hi, I was recently on a tour of the, um, said to be the Confederate White House in Montgomery, Alabama. And of course there's all this stuff about Jeff Davis and all of his things. And the guy that gave, was giving us the tour said that he was really kindly to his slaves. Yeah, the guy who was giving us the tour said that Jeff Davis was very kindly to his slaves and that his wife had taught some of his slaves how to read. It's, doesn't seem to gel with what you're saying. Davis was a large planter. Uh, he owned 113 slaves. Some of them came to Richmond with him and served as household servants. Uh, he did have the reputation as being a benevolent master. Uh, his older brother, Joseph, who was something of a father figure to Davis, uh, he was uh, 24 years older than Davis. Uh, he was the oldest of 10 children, and, D and Jefferson Davis was the younger of uh, uh, 10 children. And Davis's father had actually died when he was young, so his older brother, Joseph, uh, became something of a father figure to him. And Joseph was an even wealthier planter uh, and had really pioneered in um, sort of uh, um, giving the slaves on his plantation uh, a fair degree of autonomy and self-rule uh, to enact discipline, and Jefferson Davis uh, did the same thing. So 
given the context of slavery, which is a repressive and cruel institution, within that context, uh, I think that the Davis brothers uh, had a reputation as being not cruel masters themselves. The institution was cruel, uh, but within it, at least uh, Davis tried to mitigate some of the some of the repression and the cruelty of that institution. Uh, not that that can make us admire him in any way, uh, because he was strongly pro-slavery, uh, argued the pro-slavery argument in Congress uh, during the 1850s, the United States Congress, and of course was the leader of a nation that came into existence in order to protect slavery. But within that context, if you grant, if you grant the existence of that context, uh, Davis was probably, the Davis brothers were probably less repressive and less cruel than the average southern large slave owner. 